but we come now to the preaching of God's word. And so I invite you to open your copy of God's word to Romans chapter four. Romans chapter four. We've been seeing how it's, how it is that a person is justified before God, acquitted of all guilt in the court of heaven, whereby they receive the forgiveness of sin and are counted righteous with the righteousness of Christ. And we've seen that it's entirely through faith, apart from works, apart from ceremonial rites, and apart from the law. And that it is this way in order that it may be in accordance with grace. Because if it were any other way, no one would qualify. Which is why justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Because, soon, because as soon as you add anything to faith, it can no longer be in accordance with grace. Grace is to faith what wages are to works. And so as soon as works factor in, justification becomes what is due, what is earned or owed. And so Abraham believed the promise of God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Long before he was circumcised, long before any heroic acts of faith and long before the giving of the law. Not only in that moment were his sins instantly forgiven, past, present, and future, but he was also counted with a perfect record of righteousness, the perfect obedience of Christ, whereby he fulfilled all righteousness was counted to Abraham. And so Abraham was justified by faith and by faith alone. And yet with that said, the faith that justifies possesses certain qualities, certain distinguishing marks, marks that distinguish it as genuine saving faith. And that's where Paul goes to next, to the essence or nature of Abraham's faith. And really, to appreciate its essence, you need to see it in action, and that's what you'll see in our text today. Look at Romans 4, verses 16 to 25. It reads, for this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. In the presence of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope he believed so that he might become a father of many nations. According to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, He contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, 
He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. So the question is this. Why is this such a critical step in Paul's argument? Why is it so important to demonstrate the the nature and quality of Abraham's faith? He's already shown that Abraham was justified by faith. So why is it so necessary that he put on display the, the essence of that faith? And the reason that it is, is because Abraham is the father of all those who believe. And it's through him that the promised blessing comes to the nations. And so to be a child of God, you must have the same kind of faith that he did, a child of Abraham. And so it's a particular kind of faith that saves, not just any faith will do. And so the profile of Abraham's faith is reproduced in the lives of his children. And so it's not just that we can draw our spiritual lineage all the way back to Abraham. It's that we must draw our spiritual lineage back to him. To be Abraham's children, there must be vital continuity between his faith and ours. And that's why Paul defines the nature of Abraham's faith. To crystallize the kind of faith that justifies in order to ensure that we have followed in the footsteps of Abraham's faith. And so here's what we're going to see. We're going to see the conviction of saving faith, the characteristics of saving faith, and the continuity of saving faith. Three fundamental features of the kind of faith that saves that we would be able to identify genuine saving faith. And so note first, the conviction of saving faith. The conviction of saving faith. And the conviction is actually expressed at the end of verse 17, the second half of it. But we want to get a running start. And so look at verse 16. We looked at it briefly last time, but look at it again. Verse 16, for this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace. Now, for this reason, could look back to verses 13 to 15, where Paul indicates that if the inheritance is based on law, then neither faith nor promise would reach their intended outcome. That if the law factors in, then faith and promise would come up short. Since the law only functions to increase God's wrath, it's incapable of securing the inheritance. But more likely, for this reason points forward, that it's by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace. And that completely complements what came before. That if it were by law, then apart from Christ, there would be no inheritors. Only Christ can fulfill the law. Only Christ has fulfilled the law. And that's entirely consistent with the twofold purpose expressed in what follows. That it's by faith in accordance with grace so that, here it is, the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, that is the believing Jew, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, believing Gentiles. So there's a twofold purpose. One, that the promise would be guaranteed. That the promise would be guaranteed. I mean, think about it. If it were by law, not only could there be no guarantee, since you'd have to wait to the end of your life and the judgment to find out if, in fact, you've made the cut. 
but the guarantee would actually run in the exact opposite direction since the law would prevent anyone from ever reaching the goal, from ever securing the inheritance. And so it's by faith in accordance with grace so that the promise is guaranteed. And two, that the promise would be guaranteed to all the descendants, to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, that is the believing Jew, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, believing Gentiles. Otherwise what? You would have to become a Jew to belong to the people of God. You couldn't remain in your current condition as a Gentile and believe in Christ and be saved. And so it's by faith in accordance with grace so that the promise is guaranteed to everyone who believes, both Jew and Gentile alike. And this ties into the universal fatherhood of Abraham. There's a real sense in which Abraham was a Gentile, not a Jew. He was called from among the nations and believed God and was justified, then went on to be circumcised. And so he is the universal father of all those who believe. And his universal fatherhood takes center stage here at the end of verse 16, where it says, who is the father of us all? As it is written, verse 17, a father of many nations have I made you. Quoting Genesis 17, 5, when Abraham's name went from Abram to Abraham, from exalted father to the father of a multitude. And so the blessing of Abraham reaching the nations is the fulfillment of Genesis 17, 5 a fulfillment that's realized in Abraham's spiritual offspring consisting of both Jews and Gentiles, those who are of the same faith as Abraham. And so the nations being blessed and the fatherhood of Abraham are two inseparable realities. The nations are blessed by exercising the same faith that Abraham did. The faith which he exercised when he believed the promise of Genesis 15, 5 and was declared righteous, being imputed with the righteousness of God in Christ. And so the question is this, what was Abraham's faith like? His faith that received this grace that guarantees the, the promise. And it's here that Paul seamlessly shifts to the nature of Abraham's faith with a statement that really captures the convictions that undergirded his faith. And you see this in the middle of verse 17. In the presence of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. And so there are two convictions concerning God's nature that undergirded Abraham's faith and both serve to amplify the certainty of the promise coming to fruition. The first is that God is the one who gives life to the dead, who gives life to the dead, which most obviously applies to what? 
to what's expressed in verse 19, both the deadness of Abraham's body and the deadness of Sarah's womb, bringing the promise concerning Isaac into view. But you also see this conviction at work in Abraham and his willingness to sacrifice Isaac. Listen to Hebrews eleven seventeen and following. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. So this conviction that God is the one who gives life to the dead was even undergirding Abraham's faith when he offered up Isaac. And it even alludes to what Paul will say about the resurrection of Christ, pointing to the continuity between Abraham's faith and ours, where in verse 24, we're depicted as those who believe in God, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. And so this is a critical conviction of saving faith, that God is he who gives life to the dead, that he has both the power and the prerogative to do so. And the second conviction is that God is the one who calls into being that which does not exist, who calls into being that which does not exist. And at face value, given the way this is rendered, it appears to be referring to God's creative power, his power to create ex nihilo, out of nothing, as he did in the creation of the world when he spoke it into existence. But a better way to render this is that God is the one who calls those things which do not, do not exist as though they did, as in the New King James Version. And the idea is that God is able to name that which doesn't yet exist as though it already does. That when God makes a promise about something that doesn't yet exist, his promise is so sure that it can be regarded by him as already having existence. And so when Abraham was promised by God that he would be the father of many nations, the conviction undergirding Abraham's faith was that the promise was as good as fulfilled. That what God had promised was already his. That what God had determined to do, he most certainly would. That God's promise is as good as its fulfillment. So this is another essential conviction of saving faith. That God is he who will bring to fruition all that he's promised. That God's promise regards that which hasn't happened as though it already has. It is absolutely certain. So just think about that. Undergirding. Genuine saving faith are these two convictions, two critical convictions that God is the one that gives life to the dead and that God is the one that speaks of those things which do not yet exist as though they already do because he's able to bring everything that he promises to fruition. And so let's personalize this a little bit. What promises 
has God made to you in his word that pertain to the future, to the unseen, to that which doesn't yet exist as it were? And what promises has God made to you in his word that pertain to the resurrection, to life from the dead, to life after death? Well, let me call some to mind for you. That he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1, 6. That God will cause everything in your life to work together for good, Romans 8, 28. That you will never perish and that no one will snatch you out of either the Father or the Son's hand, John 10, 28 and 29. That Jesus is going to come again. And will receive you to himself, that where he is, you may be also, John 14, 3. That in the Father's heavenly house, there's a specific dwelling place prepared and reserved for you, John 14, 2. That should you die before the Lord's return, you will be absent from the body and at home with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, 8. That you will participate in the marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19, 9. That Christ is going to return to the earth to rule and reign, Revelation 19, 9. That Christ is going to return to the earth at his second coming, rather. That the earth will be delivered from its curse, Romans 8, 21. That you will inherit the earth, Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That a new heavens and a new earth will dawn, Revelation 21.1. That God will dwell among us, Revelation 21.3. That every tear will be wiped away. That death will cease. And that there will no longer be any mourning, crying, or pain, Revelation 21.4. That you will dwell in the presence of both God and Christ. Not just delivered from the penalty and power of sin but also delivered from the very presence of sin, saved to sin no more for all of eternity, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2.7. All of that is future and unseen and hinges on God being able to raise the dead and to fulfill his promises. You see, not only is God the one who gives life to the dead, but he's also the one who calls those things which do not exist as though they, as though they did. So his promises in his word concerning the unseen are absolutely certain. They are as good as the fulfillment itself divinely guaranteed. And so the same convictions undergirding Abraham's faith need to be your convictions. These are critical convictions to genuine saving faith. And really, when you make that link, it ought to bolster your faith. It ought to bolster your conviction because your faith is the same faith as Abraham's. And both God's power and faithfulness to him are his power and faithfulness to you. In fact, your salvation is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. And so you have every reason 
to be rock solid in your confidence in God. That's the conviction of saving faith. Now, second, the characteristics of saving faith. The characteristics of saving faith. And there are five characteristics that come through in verses 18 to 22. One, saving faith hopes. Saving faith hopes. Look at verse 18. In hope against hope, he believed so that he might become a father of many nations. According to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Citing the promise in Genesis 15, 5. The very promise Abraham believed, which was reckoned to him as righteousness. To believe that promise, that Abraham would have descendants like the stars of heaven, was to hope against hope. He had no offspring. His wife, Sarah, was barren. And he was somewhere between 75 and 85 years old. And so he was hoping against hope in believing the promise of God. So what does it mean to hope against hope? Well, from the human vantage point, there was no reason to hope. Abraham had every reason, humanly speaking, to reject the promise. And he spells this out, Paul does, in verse 19. Abraham considered his own body now as good as dead and also contemplated the deadness of Sarah's womb. From the human vantage point, this was impossible. There was zero hope, humanly speaking. And yet, from the divine perspective, there was nothing but hope. Abraham had every reason from the divine perspective to believe the promise. And so what you have here are two qualitatively different and competing hopes. There was an earthly hope that provided no hope, and there was a heavenly hope springing forth from the promise of God. And in the face of all that was against him, Abraham believed with confident hope, a settled hope. That's what faith is. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, Hebrews 11.1. 1. Abraham believed the promise, believing in the one who made the promise to him. So saving faith hopes and does so hoping against hope. Two, saving faith perseveres. Saving faith perseveres. Look at verse 19. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief. So not only did Abraham's faith persevere in the face that all that stood in opposition to the promise, but he also didn't waver in unbelief which is an amazing statement. How can Paul say that? The, the Genesis account of Abraham's life, even, even, even post-Genesis 15, when he was justified, 
is not lacking in moments of regression, moments of, of weakness in Abraham. There was the, the situation with Hagar, Sarah's Egyptian maid that resulted in Ishmael. And even when God made the promise specifically concerning Isaac in Genesis 17, Abraham responded by laughing. He fell down on his face and laughed and then even appealed to God that it might be Ishmael who would receive the blessing. And yet here is scripture affirming that Abraham did not waver in unbelief. And this has the potential to be incredibly encouraging because Paul is not attempting to depict a perfection in Abraham's faith. Instead, he's depicting a settled and steady pattern of faith. And that scripture would provide this testimony in spite of Abraham's regressions ought to strengthen you. Because if you are believing the promise and you are hoping against hope and following in Abraham's footsteps, then the scripture commends you too. Even in the hall of faith, in Hebrews 11, it is littered with imperfect people. Some of those individuals, you wonder how they even got in there. And yet, though there were lapses, scripture commends them. And so though there may have been moments of regression in Abraham's faith, he nevertheless persisted and persevered in it. He wasn't a double-minded man, James 1.6, and avoided ever falling into a settled attitude of distrust toward God. And that's why Paul can say he did not waver in unbelief. His faith perseveres because that's what saving faith does. Three, saving faith strengthens. Saving faith strengthens. Next part of verse 20, but grew strong in faith. The longer that Abraham walked with God, the stronger his faith grew as he persevered in the face of opposition, as he overcame various obstacles, and as he experienced the unfolding of the faithfulness of God. And that's what saving faith does. It not only perseveres, it grows in strength. It's like a muscle that strengthens against resistance. And the more you work it, the stronger it gets. And really, we're familiar with this concept. We see this reflected throughout Scripture, but Paul is going to touch on it in chapter 5, verse 3 and following, when he says this, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. I mean, this is James 1. Count all joy when you experience various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And so saving faith strengthens, it grows in strength for saving faith glorifies God. Saving faith glorifies God. End of verse 20, giving glory to God. 
That was the effect or result of Abraham growing in faith. And so by growing in faith, strong in faith and not wavering in unbelief, Abraham gave glory to God. I mean, just think about that for a moment. You may be wondering, how can I glorify God in my life? By believing God, by persevering in faith, when you persevere in holding God to his promises, you glorify him. And so you can glorify God by believing his promises, by taking him at his word, by building your life upon his word. And that makes glorifying God incredibly accessible to you. Just think about that. By believing upon the word of God and and acting on that word, living in light of that word, you are glorifying him. You are bringing delight to him as he looks down upon you as his child and sees you walking in faith. And he is eminently dependable, perfectly reliable. And so this, this reality that your faith growing and persevering that it brings glory to God out of fuel your desire to seize on opportunities to glorify him daily, practically, as you live out your life, knowing that it delights him when we hold fast to his word, especially in the midst of adversity. And that's what saving faith does. It glorifies God. And five, saving faith is settled Saving faith is settled. Verse 21, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. To be fully assured is to be fully convinced. And you'll notice that Abraham isn't believing in faith itself. He isn't looking to his own faith. He isn't evaluating the quality of his faith. Being fully assured that his faith is genuine. That's not what he's doing. That's not where he's looking. What's he fully assured of? It says there that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. His confidence was in God. And so he was fully convinced that God would deliver on his promises. And that was true in spite of the fact that Abraham did not know how those promises would come to fruition. So even when he heard the promise concerning Isaac, he laughs initially. But he was fully convinced that God would be faithful. And really what's important to note here is that though being fully convinced, fully assured, marked Abraham's entire walk with God, it was also present the very moment he believed. And in the next verse, Paul cites the text that has dominated this entire chapter. Genesis 15, 6. Look at verse 22. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. The faith that marked his entire life in relation to the promise was reckoned as righteousness the moment he believed. 
the very moment the promise was given. And so we not only see that saving faith justifies, but we also see that saving faith is living and active. Note this, that it produces the obedience of faith, Romans 1.5. Now, here's what you have to appreciate. You've just seen these five characteristics of saving faith. And what you have to understand is that just like Abraham, you are believing in hope against hope. You're in the same situation. You're surrounded by things that stand up in opposition to the salvation God promises, both from within and from without, both internally and externally. Just think, you believe your sins are forgiven. Past, present, and future. Well, how do you know that they're forgiven? Well, because the word of God promises that they're forgiven. And yet you still battle the flesh. You still sin and fall short of the glory of God. And the world, the flesh, and the devil entirely oppose that. And so you are in the same position as Abraham, having to hope against hope, even in your justification, having to hope against hope in your, your eternal future. You're in the same boat as Abraham. And so it's no wonder that some would at times struggle with a sense of assurance of their salvation. You are hoping against hope. Humanly speaking, this looks impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And he is able to do that which he has promised to do. And consider it. When there are moments of a lack of assurance, where should you look? To yourself? To your life? To the quality of your faith? No. Look to the one who made the promise. Look to him who is able. That's where Abraham looked. When there were questions, when there were difficulties, regressions in faith, he looked to him who promised and is able to perform that which he did. And so again, the road that we walk is more like Abraham's than you might have thought. The, the, the connection between Abraham and his life and faith and ours is incredibly strong. And his faith is reproduced in the lives of his children. And so it's appropriate to ask, are you hoping against hope? Can you see that quality in your life? Will you have believed God in hope against hope? Are you persevering in faith? Is your faith pressing on, remaining steadfast, moving forward? Is your faith growing in strength? Can you see that as you overcome obstacles and believe in the face of opposition, that the muscle of your faith is growing in strength? 
Are you glorifying God? Can you see that you're bringing glory to God by taking him at his word and believing on his promise? And are you fully convinced? Fully convinced that God is able to do that which he's promised to do. Because these are the marks of the kind of faith that saves. The characteristics of saving faith. Now third, the continuity of saving faith. The continuity of saving faith. And this is where Paul is going to make the continuity, the link between Abraham and us, undeniable. Verse 23. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him. So Genesis 15, 6, was it merely written as a memorial to Abraham that he believed God and that it was counted to him as righteousness has historical redemptive significance. And this comes out in the next verse, verse 24. But for our sake also, to whom it will be credited. So it was written for our benefit. To whom righteousness would be credited apart from works. In fact, Paul says this in Romans 15, 4, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And then it says, next part of verse 4, or 24 rather, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. And what's interesting is that Paul identifies God the Father as the object of our faith. Look there, it says, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus, depicting the Father as the one who raised Christ. So why does Paul do that? Why does Paul isolate God the Father as the object of our faith here? To show the continuity between Abraham's faith and ours. It goes back to the middle of verse 17. Look at it. In the presence of him, God, the father, whom Abraham believed, who gives life to the dead. So Abraham believed God, who gives life to the dead, and we have believed God, who raised Jesus from the dead. And so again, the continuity between Abraham's faith and ours is incredibly strong. We are justified the same way and share the same God. You say, but James, previously you said that Christ is the object of our faith. And he is. But to believe in Jesus is to believe that he died and rose again. And to believe in God is to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. And so there's no contradiction. You can't believe in God without believing in Christ. And you can't believe in Christ without believing in God. Verse 25, referring to Christ, it says, he who is delivered over because of our transgressions. And the verb there, delivered, is in the passive. So someone delivered Jesus over. The question is who? 
Was it the Jews? Was it the Romans? Who was it that delivered Jesus over? It was God. How do we know? Because he was delivered over because of our transgressions. In fact, the same word is used of the action of the father later in this epistle, Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So it was God the father who delivered over his son, and he did so to accomplish our redemption. And so this points back to Romans 3.25, where it says, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood, a satisfaction of his holy wrath and divine justice, that God would be both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And this is accentuated in the second half of verse 25, and was raised because of our justification. So God the Father raised Jesus, divine passive, because of our justification. You say, well, how can it be that that, that the resurrection is being linked to justification here? That seems like an unusual link. We don't normally link the resurrection to justification. So why was Jesus raised because of our justification? Because the resurrection both confirms and authenticates that our justification has been secured. It's God's stamp of approval on the finished work of Christ. That Christ's atoning work has satisfied the terms of God's wrath and divine justice. And yet the link between the resurrection and justification goes beyond that, goes well beyond that. In fact, let me give you seven connections between the resurrection and justification. I mean, this is helpful. Everything is interconnected. And we'll work through these pretty briskly. For one, justification is only one link in the golden chain of redemption, which is an unbreakable chain that began in eternity past and reaches into eternity future and has as its goal that we would be entirely conformed into the image of Christ. And for that to become a reality, Jesus must be what? Alive. For two, The entire golden chain of redemption, which includes our justification, takes place in connection with our union with Christ. A union that in some sense began again in eternity past, since we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. And so our union with Christ, which, which is bound up in our justification, necessitates his resurrection. For three... 1 Corinthians 1.30 says that Christ has become to us righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, each of which is tied to justification. And yet for Christ to become these things to us requires that he again be alive, and so this too necessitates the resurrection. Four, 
We are justified by faith. And Jesus is the object of our faith. He is the Savior. And so it follows that he must be alive. The very fact that we're justified by faith requires the resurrection of Christ. Five. Romans 5.2 indicates that it's through Christ that we have obtained our inheritance into the grace of God. That Christ mediates the grace in which we stand. And yet for him to mediate anything requires what? That he be alive. And so that too necessitates the resurrection. Six, this grace that we've obtained our introduction into by being justified through faith in Christ is a transformative grace. It's nothing short of being raised to newness of life, Romans 6, 4. And yet that would be impossible unless Jesus had risen from the grave because our being raised to newness of life is directly tied to being united to Christ in his resurrection. And so it too necessitates the resurrection. And seven, our justification ties into the intercessory work of Christ. There's an ongoing intercessory work of Christ in the life of the believer and our justification is tied to that. Look at Romans 5, verses 9 and 10. It says, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Verse 10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So Jesus, being alive, and the power of death having no power over him since he conquered the grave, is is critical to our being saved in the end. As the author of Hebrews puts it, therefore, referring to Christ, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them, Hebrews 7.25. And so even the ongoing intercessory work that is tied to our justification requires the resurrection. And so when you put all of that together, the convictions of saving faith, the characteristics of saving faith, the continuity of saving faith, what is apparent is that we are Abraham's children. And just like Abraham, we are strangers and aliens. Just like Abraham, we're we're looking to the city of God, a city whose architect and builder is God. We're hoping against hope, justified the same way, believing in the same God, having the same convictions, even possessing the same characteristics of saving faith. And so that means this, that as you walk with God between justification and future glorification, Abraham's life becomes not just incredibly encouraging, but incredibly instructive. You can look to Abraham and you can look to his life and you can look to all of the 
the matters that he went through, both the successes and failures, the, the, the regressions and the heroic acts of faith, and draw so much courage and comfort from that, that you would be resolved to press on and persevere against all opposition in the face of all obstacles, knowing that God is faithful to bring about and to perform everything that he has promised to do. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We're so grateful for the inspiration of your word, this portion of scripture given to us for our instruction and edification and even to be able to see the, the link between Abraham and us more clearly. Father, we are so grateful. We look to you, the one who gives life to the dead, the one who is able to name that which does not exist as though it did, because the certainty of it being realized is absolutely certain. And so, Father, help us, we pray, minister to us wherever we are in this moment that we might walk with resolve and faithfulness, looking to you, even looking to Christ, the author and perfecter of faith, the very one risen from the grave. It's in his name we pray. Amen.